The American writer John Hodgman has devised a party game. It's called Invisibility or Flight. If you could have just one of those two superpowers, which would you choose? Now, if you set aside the obvious concerns, like whether you'd need to be naked every time you're invisible, or whether people would hear your footsteps, or whether high-altitude flight would actually be quite uncomfortable, there's still apparently a right answer. The right answer is flight. People who choose flight have got nothing to hide. They're selfless, competent and unashamed. People who choose invisibility are basically deceitful, voyeuristic, fearful, crouching perverts. I would choose invisibility. When I was a child, I would have chosen flight. What happened to me? I'm about to meet Peter Jenkins. He's going to teach me how to be invisible. It's 11.45 at the Angel Tube Station in North London. This is our designated meeting time and meeting place for Peter. And either Peter isn't here yet, or else he's very, very good. And then Peter did appear from nowhere, like the shopkeeper in Mr. Ben, and we went for a coffee. Peter teaches surveillance to investigators and special forces and British government agencies. He teaches people how to follow people without being spotted. If you're following a target, you've got to be invisible from him. You don't want him to see you or to notice you. But more importantly, I think, it's everybody else around you. It's the third party, as we call it. These are the people that will notice you. They'll see you acting strangely. They could report you to the police. They could end up following you because they're a bit suspicious about your presence and your manner. You don't want to give over a kind of aura of furtiveness. You don't want to look shifty. You've got to use what's around you. For example, in a, a rural environment, you could take a soldier that's trying to blend into his environment. He will use things like ditches, hedgerows, trees, the natural foliage to hide amongst. Whereas you've got to look around you in an urban environment and think, what have we got to use here? Well, there's a few trees, there's bicycle, there's lots of paid display machines, um, street lights, cars, lots of cars, parked cars. Am I getting there? Sort of, but we don't want to be sat in a car that's looking obvious. You may want to sit in the passenger seat, because what do you think somebody walking past will think if they look down to see one person in the passenger seat of a car? They're waiting for someone to come back with the shopping. Good, yeah, so you're giving a reason for being there, effectively. Again, if we look around, so there's a telephone booth just down the street there. Yeah. You could stand in there. I noticed one across the road, but how long could you stand in a telephone booth without somebody starting to bang on the window? If there's somebody already in it, what do you think you can do? Queue up. Good. Because that what we're doing now is extending your life on the street and you've got a reason for actually being there. And if that person leaves the phone booth, then you can then go into it and use that as your what we call a trigger position where you can get eyes on. But it's your short term measure, as it is you know identified. Ten or fifteen minutes. But remember turn your cell phone off. Because if your cell phone goes off while you're in a pay phone, it's unnatural. It doesn't look right. Okay, so what else around us now? I mean we're just on your average London shopping street. One of the places that you don't want to be is what we call the 10 to 2 position. If you think straight ahead is 12 o'clock, you've got 10 o'clock on your left, 2 o'clock on your right. You never want to be in that arc of vision, what we call the 10 to 2 arc of vision. What we'll do, we'll give you an exercise where we'll give you a, a shop, and when somebody comes out of the shop, I'll indicate them to you, and we'll follow them for a few hundred yards up the street. Have you chosen a shop yet? Or we'll walk up the street, 100 yards. We'll just get away from them. There's a few characters watching us with a microphone. We'll get away from their gazes, I think. 
And you can hear how Peter and I got on later. Teenagers have taken over our square at night. They yell for hours. And sometimes I turn off all the lights and peer out from behind the curtains to spy on them. Tonight a letter arrives. It says, Dear neighbours, it's time we stop being scared in our own homes. If you want me to join you in an act of solidarity and confront these kids, I will. I read the letter to my six-year-old son, Joel, and I say, Is he nuts? Yeah, laughs Joel, but he looks confused. He disappears and comes back in his karate uniform with his red belt attached. Let's get them, he says. But they'll beat us up, I explain. Joel looks at me. Oh, he says. Joel doesn't want the power of invisibility yet. He wants the power of flight. Frank O'Hearn helps people become invisible. Actually, I get the feeling that the kinds of people Frank helps disappear are often the same kinds of people that Peter Jenkins is paid to follow. How many people have you got out there who are, who are now vanished, who you're continuing to help be invisible? Uh, probably about seven successful people. And there are points of contact if there's an emergency, they can get in touch with me or a family or friend. So it really depends on who you are and how much discretion you really need. Hmm. And those seven people, one was a, a whistleblower, one was a, a, oh, an attorney. An attorney. And a few were victims of stalking. One is kind of interesting. He happened to be an investment banker, and he happened to also be a Christian fundamentalist who wanted to create a Christian fundamentalist periodical that was quite extreme, anti-gay, anti-abortion. And what he wanted me to do was create a situation where this periodical, there would never be any traces to him in financing this situation. And he still has his other life as an investment banker. Right. Like Peter Parker. Exactly. But, and with, and... <laughs> but, but a kind of weird Spider-Man. Well, kind of a freaky guy, but, you know, each to their own, I guess. But if it ever got out, he probably would lose a tremendous amount of business because of his religious point of view. Wow. So in his guise as an investment banker, he's pro-abortion and pro-gay and, and just, you know, but then he has this other life. Yeah, so I, in meeting with him, when he first emailed me, I thought he was a nut job in plain English. But he was very serious, and he also coughed up the dough, so you can't complain about that. Sure. Wow. How much does it cost to disappear? What, what do you charge? That's always the magic question. It depends on who you are, to be honest with you, and it depends on what you're looking to accomplish. Total invisibility. Go 15, 20 grand. It sounds very, you know, it sounds very comforting to be able to come to somebody and say, I, I, I want to be invisible, and you say, uh, okay, I will make you invisible. Is it comforting? Is it just me? Maybe I just want to be invisible. I, I think, I, well, listen, I, I want to be invisible too. I think it's a question of who you're running from. But the reality is you always got to look over your back and be cautious of your actions. Hmm. So how do you do it? I come to you, I, I want to be invisible. How do I go about it? Well, the first key is pretty much 
your consumerism. A lot of people today have 10% discount cards. What we pretty much do is destroy all of those cards and we have you call in and we have you start deviating your first name. If your first name was John, mm -hmm. we have you call in and say it's a mistake, it was actually Ron, can you change it? And we just slowly start chipping away your utility bill. We have it mailed to a different address. We start having you call obscure type of places because if somebody's going to hire an investigator to look for you they're going to start looking into your utilities your phone records and things of that nature so what our goal is to do is eat up that budget because eating up the budget is one of the most important aspects of it and people find people via their frequent flyer accounts on airlines so we'd get somebody with your name in a different city and state and we would just transfer the frequent flyer account over to that particular individual wow that'd be hard i've worked very hard for my seventy thousand miles on american <laughs> that's tough that's the toughest thing you've said so far yeah, it'll take me five minutes to get a copy of your itinerary where you flew in the past five years too and one of the other things that we do is we have you open up a bank account in the United States and we have you leave a couple hundred bucks in it and I have the Mac card and I send it to clients every once in a while who are traveling and I tell them do me a favor go go withdraw 20 bucks from this account and have a drink on me so if anybody's looking for your bank account they're gonna see a withdrawal from London or withdrawal from Dublin or withdrawal from Los Angeles and they'll start looking in that area so that's one of the other things that we do that should create deception huh. I've got to say, I'd fall at the first hurdle because I'd have to change my name from John to Ron, which means I'd be Ron Ronson, which is, <laughs> which is a clown name, which everyone would, would remember. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. I've gotten emails from people who you know, are concerned that their TV is being bugged and monitored, and people who believe that they're being watched and the government is tapping into their bank accounts. Someone like that, I just really try to answer them as responsible as possible and pretty much send them a link to the FBI because I figure either they're a nut or they're a government agency just curious to what I do. Frank himself is basically invisible. His colleague Eileen says it would take them about eight minutes to disappear entirely if they ever have to. You'll never find like utilities under my name or a phone under my name. And I think it's just part of the business of being discreet. I, I, and I know the rough area where you are. I know you're somewhere in a big city on the east coast of America. Yes, sir. But that's all I know. <laughs> Actually, I know you're in a BBC studio. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens to all those people who are left behind? The children of the invisible. One of those children is the writer, John Holmes. Think of all the animals you've ever heard about, like rhinoceros and tigers, cats and mink. There are lots of funny animals in all this world, but here's my question. Have you ever adopted one of them? Now, don't worry, that's not as bad as it sounds. They don't come to live with you or anything. You just get a certificate and a warm glow in the knowledge that you've contributed to the general well-being of an otter. It's there, it's yours, you are an adoptive parent. The bonus is you don't even ever have to meet it, let alone shell out for an iPod for it for Christmas. But adopt a human baby, and those bureaucrats with their petty rules and red tape insist that you put in a bit more of an effort. How do I know? 
Well, I'm adopted, and as a result, I have absolutely no idea who my real mother and father are. Not a clue. What happened? Well, here's the thing. I don't know. From the earliest I can remember, I knew I was adopted. My parents, my adoptive parents, who will be referred to as my parents herein, told me from day one what the score was. I had been chosen. I was the chosen one. A bit like the little boy freak in The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. Sadly, however, I couldn't bend metal with my mind or bring dead insects back to life by touching their wings. But on the plus side, I hadn't been captured by a monster and hidden away in a castle in Tibet. So I guess it swings and roundabouts. I was two weeks old, apparently. Thus, even if I were to pass my birth mother in the street, I wouldn't recognise her. She might as well be invisible. We all like to know where we've come from, I guess, but as I have little or no record of even my birth parents' names, then I'm not sure I can be asked. Well, actually, there you go. There's another clue right there. I'm obviously genetically lazy. Be still. The other side of the adoptive coin is that I may, of course, have half-brothers and sisters that I don't know about, who by now may well have kids of their own, making me an uncle several times over. And it's nearly Christmas. If they all club together, they could buy me all five seasons of The West Wing as a box set. Result. But I guess if they are out there, they'll remain invisible for as long as I wish. If the definition of invisibility is something that can't be seen, like David McCallum's hands in The Invisible Man, or the point of Radio 4's quote-unquote, then they are, to all intents and purposes, invisible. It's a whole tetra-pack of worms I'm not sure I want to open. There's a letter written when I was born that I was told I could read at any age when I was ready. I imagined when I opened it that this would be from my birth mother. It would explain all, leave me a forwarding address and possibly contain a fiver, or at the very least, an HMV voucher. Well, there's nothing like going for broke, so I've read it especially for this programme. And here's the gist of what it says. Mother. 21-year-old single English girl who was herself adopted as a baby. She attended grammar school and is interested in oil painting, sketching, reading and knitting. Attractive, slim, brown hair and eyes, health good. The father was 26 years old and married, and therefore there is no question of marriage here. And the whole thing is signed by a children's officer. Furthermore, there's no HMV voucher, honestly. Oh, and I can assure you that the knitting gene isn't hereditary. Think of all the words you could have said The road's not fit for a kid Who ain't ready to see it yet It 
Anyway, my adoptive parents are, of course, brilliant, and it's testimony to them that I'm on the radio talking about this as easily as I could talk about the weather. My parents are my parents, my sisters are my sisters, and I love them all, and that's that. I'm interested from a lineage point of view, largely in case I turn out to be a duke or heir to the throne of Narnia, but so far, that's it. Perhaps if this goes to television, I'll do it then. That was John Holmes. Back in Islington, London, Peter Jenkins and I are looking for a perfect spot to invisibly stake out a man at a cash point. Peter chose him because people at cash points are extra vigilant and consequently harder to invisibly pursue. OK, there's a guy, long black hair, she knows all he's leaving. He is, he's looking around him to make sure nobody's going to steal his money. He's heading our way. We're just standing here, right? I'll just stand to one side so it's not more of a crowd. I think I've lost him already. Oh, no, here he is. He's, he's actually walking right past us. He's looking right at me, scratching his head. He's crossing the road now. Let's follow him. He's starting to run, but not because he thinks he's being followed, but because... He was on a busy road. He's going into like a second-hand camera shop, so we need to find a trigger position. I'm looking fast. There's some. There's a bin. So, oh no, no, no. Here's a flower shop. I'm going to look at the flowers. It's at ten to two, but I'm panicking, and I can't think of anything else to do. Tulips, heather, chili peppers. Is this good? Is this about three o'clock, Peter? Yeah, just think about your positioning now. If he comes out and comes this way. He's going to walk right past me. Because we've housed him, we've put him into somewhere, we need to re-trigger it. Across the street, possibly, as long as you're out of the tent to two. OK. Phone box. OK. OK. We're going back across the street to the phone box. I've got my mobile phone switched off so it doesn't ring. OK, I'm in the phone box. Picking up the phone. That's it. OK. Chat, chat, chat on the phone. He's still in there. Peter, I've got an awful feeling about work in there, in which case we're going to be standing in this phone box all day. Quite possibly. And he, it's a second-hand store, so it's likely he's gone over to the machine to get some change for somebody. Possibly. Um, or maybe again, just to buy something. Possibly. Again, one of the qualities of a good surveillance operator is having patience. OK. OK, we've only been in here two minutes. If you have a uniform, you are completely invisible. I think another thing that helps invisibility is to carry some form of cleaning equipment. This helps enormously. It's amazing. It's like an invisible cloak. So a mop is very good, or a duster. Well, one of those trolleys is also brilliant. People literally don't see you. This is Maggie O'Farrell. Nowadays, she's a writer, but she used to be invisible. 
when I was starting a job, one of the people who kind of trained me, so to speak, said that you just never make eye contact. If you see a guest in the corridor, drop your eyes. And why do you think they said that? I think the essence of chambermaids is invisibility. I think you're supposed to be invisible. It's like that fairy story, the elves and the shoemakers, you know. Um, people want to believe that their room magically tidies itself, I think. Did you feel a real sense of power over them? Because you're in a very lowly position. At least you had something, I suppose. It's an incredibly voyeuristic job. The other thing about chambermaiding is that you're complete and utter omniscience. And the boredom and the tedium and the hardship of it is leavened by, you know, you know how often they have sex and often how they have sex <laughs> and how they do it and who they do it with and who's married and who isn't and all those things. So, yeah, there is a certain amount of power. I mean, I don't know how you'd use that power. But, yeah, I mean, it's certainly fascinating for someone who's nosy like I am. Tell me about some of the other sort of things that you saw while you were invisible in some of these rooms. Well, there was one man that actually the other chambermaids and I used to have a joke about, and we used to fight about who wasn't going to do his room, because whenever we would arrive, he'd be there, often dressed in a very small hand towel, and <laughs> while we were doing our work, he would proceed to go through a really weird and very rigorous routine of ablutions, and he'd cut his ear hair and clean his teeth, floss his teeth, and do a lot of stuff on his toenails. I'm sure it was some kind of odd perversion that he would like to be watched by a chambermaid while he was going through this strange routine of his. I think that's when I wish I was more invisible, actually. That's an example of where the omniscience, the power, isn't quite as attractive as it could be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was when I really wished I didn't have to see these things. I mean, there was one couple who proceeded to have a whirlpool bath together and have a big, full-on row about his lack of fertility. And I was there, you know, busy polishing the tooth mugs and tidying things up and folding the towels. And they were hammering tongs at this big argument about how his sperm count was very low and how she was going to leave him and find someone else because she was desperate for a baby. It was going on so long I actually managed to clean the entire room, hoover, change the sheets while they were still at it. And he was crying by the time I left. I felt a bit sorry for him. Isn't it so strange, though, to be in that kind of position, to be able to tap into somebody's personal life? It's as if you're not really there, but you are there. Well, it is. It's a very odd sensation for you because you can spend hours, you know, cleaning these rooms and people don't see you. And then you go out to the hotel and it's suddenly really odd because people talk to you again. <laughs> and you think, oh, my God, people are looking at me. <laughs> it's as if I'm here. So the kind of change from being in the hotel and leaving the hotel is quite an odd one for you. It's just something strange to your head, I think. Do you think this kind of invisibility made you feel insignificant in some way? I don't think it was. It was kind of a magical feeling, really. I quite liked it. It's a similar thing to being a writer, actually. I think the position, <laughs> it's a bit like, you're a bit like a chambermaid in your own novel, that these characters carry on and they do all their own thing and they carry on with their lives and you're kind of there watching but they don't really notice you. I quite relished the feeling, actually. How did the job finish? The job finished not on a very good note, actually, because <laughs> it was actually the one time I did shrug off my invisibility. I think by this time it was the end of the summer and I was very bored 
And there was one particular guest that I really didn't like. She was very messy and she was also very rude to me. And there was one night when I saw her in this really fantastic dress. It was a Vivian Westwood dress, actually. So there was one day when I was in her room and I was tidying everything up and I found this dress and I was putting it on the hanger for her nicely and I suddenly thought, why don't I just try it on? I noticed it was my size and I thought, you know, she never comes back into the room, she's out all day. So I took off my uniform and I slipped it on and I was having a little look at myself in the mirror when she walked back into the room. And she was absolutely furious, as you would be if you had a beautiful Vivian Westwood dress and you found a teenage chambermaid trying it on. So she dragged it off my back, actually, and we had a big row. Well, she, I didn't have a row because I didn't really say anything, but I was standing there in my underwear. She had a screaming fit at me. And then I put on my uniform and she marched me down to manager and I got the sack. How invisible did you feel standing there in your underwear? <laughs> I was very, very visible, horribly visible. <laughs> Maggie O'Farrell was talking to Simon Jacobs. Stephen Gill has been taking photographs of invisible people. Sometimes when you look at his photographs, you just see empty urban landscapes. But in fact, there are people in all of them. You spot them after a while. They are wearing bright fluorescent orange jackets. You want to be invisible? Wear a bright fluorescent jacket. Being a photographer, I've always been interested in the subtle things that photography has the ability to record, and I've recently decided to attempt to photograph some things that are intangible, and one of the subjects that I've embraced is invisibility, which is a subject which almost contradicts photography in itself. So one of the things that I've been drawn to the attention of is invisible people, and in this particular case, invisible workers in cities who help make a city tick and function. Even a colour such as these fluorescent colours which are designed to be seen, I think out of familiarity, in overwhelming numbers, we sort of categorise immediately and delete. It's an identity. I think we're constantly reading people, there's no question. And with this uniform, we read it very quickly and then acknowledge it and, and digest it. So I'm just going to ask these men if I could include them in their, their picture. They're just putting up... What are you doing exactly? Building a new communal aerial system. OK, yeah. So is it... All right, if I... It's fine if I just carry on and take a picture of you while you're working. So many workers are wearing these colours that they almost become yeah, invisible yeah. now. You don't, almost, yeah. don't see them. Everywhere, everywhere you're looking, there's the yeah, yellow jackets. You know, half people have got them on, half haven't. Yeah, yeah. And you're so used to seeing them now that they're not, they're not they really don't standing out. Yeah. yeah. So I just snap away? Yeah, take, take as many pictures as you like. OK, thank you. You're right, trying to get past. Sorry. I didn't want to go under the ledge. Uh, bad luck. Yeah, I'm done. Are you? Okay. Thanks very much. I've even had people saying to me that if they were to do a bank robbery, this is exactly what they would wear the, kind of, the brightest uniform. People have told me stories of people walking into places just lifting a grand piano and walking out wearing fluorescent clothing from opera halls and so no crimes are taking place with these colours. Yeah. I'll just turn your radio set on and we'll do a radio check just to make sure the equipment's working. You should hear a beep as I turn this radio on. Yeah, I heard you it. You hear the beep? Okay, Jen, can you hear that through your earpiece? 
There's a line in The Sopranos. Tony turns to Carmela and says, If our children ever find out how helpless we are, we're in trouble. Actually, he didn't say in trouble, but you know what I mean. I loved following people up and down the streets of Islington unnoticed, and I realised why I crave invisibility. I wish it was something upbeat and redemptive. But in fact, the older we get, the more self-consciousness and unsureness hunches us, and my shoulders are really very hunched. Invisibility is a comfort. Because if the world realised how helpless we are, we're in trouble. Hi, Ian. You take your shoe off, so I'm going to keep walking.